some of the feedback we get is, you know, we know we're supposed to use this for school, but this has been great for our household for, for other reasons. So there are just so many benefits to providing broadband access to as many people as possible. Welcome to episode 436 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rye Marcatilio McCracken at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This week, Christopher talks with Maureen Neighbors, Energy Division Chief of the Alabama Department of Economic and Community Affairs, about the state's one-of-a-kind $100 million voucher program designed and deployed for the current school year to help get and keep economically vulnerable students connected. She tells Christopher how, with the help of CTC Energy and Technology, they brought together more than three dozen internet service providers, connected with school districts around the state, designed an online portal, and mailed out tens of thousands of brochures to households with students on the free or reduced lunch program to help those families to start new service or pay their existing broadband bill. Maureen shares the challenges they met and the satisfaction in helping more than 120,000 students stay connected to school during the ongoing pandemic. Now here's Christopher talking with Maureen. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today, I'm excited to talk to someone who's running a one-of-a-kind program. It's, it's a very exciting effort to improve internet access across the entire state of Alabama. Uh, Maureen Neighbors is the Alabama Department of Economic and Community Affairs Energy Division Chief and is in charge of this program that we're going to talk about. Welcome to the show, Maureen. Thank you. So I would like to start by by just getting a sense, I think, of of what you're looking to accomplish. Like, um, obviously, we're in a pandemic, and the state of Alabama, your governor was very bold in wanting to use a lot of CARES Act money and in improving internet access. And so, can you tell us how you um, settled on this approach and describe to us what the approach is? We had a pretty broad um, stakeholder involvement prior to settling on this. Uh, we we in the short amount of time we had, we had a, a surprising amount of input. So our, our goal was obviously to provide um, some kind of connectivity for our students who would be uh, um, learning virtually, um, either because they weren't going back to school or because there was a possibility that school might be closed again sometime in uh, after it started. And then, of course, just the existing issue that was already there even pre-pandemic, and, and that is kind of that homework gap that exists in some of those areas where kids just don't have access to broadband. You know, we have a, a multi-level problem. One, of course, is accessibility because the broadband just isn't there in some of our parts of the state. But also, we had a huge issue with affordability. We're a rural state. We have um, a high population of low-income residents, and and sometimes getting into the broadband uh, uh, sphere can be difficult for them with startup costs and, and equipment fees. So we were looking at ways to um, uh, eliminate that that obstacle, and we settled on um, after looking at several data sets throughout the state, working with the Department of Education and their National School Lunch Program list. And, and using um, those students as a marker for eligibility, we created a voucher program that would allow us to um, send vouchers to students who are part of the National School Lunch Program throughout the state. And they could use those um, vouchers to redeem for new service if they didn't have service and um, if they had service already to use it as a credit on their account. 
So that was that was one component of it. The other big component of it was uh, we didn't want to overtax any single system within uh, the state. So we were a little bit concerned if we just had one or two contractors, would they really be able to support a statewide initiative? And so we did a very quick turnaround with a, a request for information from providers. We direct solicited 40 providers and also had several other uh, venues for advertising. And of those 40, we initially signed contracts with 37 of them. Most of those contractors are Alabama ISPs, um, they're local ISPs, but we also have the national players who are all involved as well. The other component of it was that um, most of the vouchers that people received had one or more providers listed on it. For those people who live in areas that there just were not providers, we also had some backup um, contracts with uh, um, some of our big national players that could provide hotspots. So our goal was to provide either hotspots or, or, or wired connections to all of our students who are enrolled in the National School Lunch Program throughout the entire state. If I'm a, if I'm an ISP, if I'm one of those, I think you said 37, right? What's my responsibility, I guess? Um, what's What am I looking at in the state of Alabama? So that was really kind of exciting the way that all came together. Our ISPs, both national and local, really stepped up. They gave us some great prices. And what they did was, or what we asked them to do was give us a price that was uh, an all-inclusive monthly price. Um, for service, any equipment or installation that might be necessary to to get a household started, to go to a portal that was set up where they could then plug in the voucher number of the family that was calling them um, and and use that code to uh, redeem it and then invoice us for for those fees. So we asked them for a couple of things. The first thing was obviously to enter into a contract with us. The second thing was to set up some kind of customer service initiative that would allow people to call directly to them and not just get the runaround, that, that there were some specific people set aside to deal with this program. The other issues that we had was, um, you know, we asked, you can't cut them off for non-payment because we're the, we're, we're the subscriber, not them. And so you're going to, you're going to get paid based on what's in the grant agreement and not based on what your normal billing policies are. Um, and um, you need to bill us by the end of November because, of course, the cutoff um, is, is at the end of December. All of them um, have indicated an interest in, in going past December if we are able to uh, come up with some additional funding to carry the program through the end of the school year. So that was what we asked of them. And so far, um, the, the partnerships that, that we've developed with, with all of the ISPs, they have been very cooperative and very helpful. We did run a second request for proposals and we've added five more to that list. So now we're close to 42. Those contracts are, are in the process of being executed. Unfortunately, you know, they'll probably only be part of the program for a few weeks before we have to shut it down, but it reaches some areas that we weren't previously able to provide wired connections. But if the federal government were to enact CARES Act too, then you would be able to um, roll on with those all those providers then yes we are we are keeping everything that can be crossed crossed in the hopes that <laughs> that happens soon so I have to ask trying to wrangle 42 different ISPs some of these folks are quite independent um, I mean across the nation we've certainly seen independent internet service providers really trying to to do their part um, you know do you feel like 
this program um, and your interactions with them, um, you know, has it been easier than you thought, harder than you thought? How, how has that worked out just trying to be on the same page and develop a contract they all liked? Um, a little bit of both. Um, most of our, our, our local smaller companies, um, they, they just got on board because they, they were of a size that minor changes in their operation didn't, didn't cause any big problems for them. Um, some of the bigger companies, not only did they already have existing programs like this, um, that they were trying to figure out how to fit their program into our program and, and it just didn't work. They were too independent. So there was a little bit of back and forth with some of the bigger ones. But surprisingly, everybody got on board. Um, you know, there have been some little glitches with some some billing. You know, their billing cycle doesn't match our billing cycle and how you, you know, pre, pre-bill for something without breaking federal laws. You know, those are some <laughs> of the things that, that we've had to work through. But um, I, I'll be honest with you, with the volume of invoices that we have and the volume of the contracts, we couldn't have done this without our outside um, uh, consultant, CTC. So they managed a, a, a good deal of the, the day-to-day um, billing and contracting and invoicing. So it is, it is a huge undertaking to, to deal with that. We, we got an invoice just today. Um, the spreadsheet with the customers um, in a single invoice was over a million dollars, which you know at, at $50 a pop, you can imagine how many vouchers had to be reviewed in order to make sure it was a valid invoice. Right. Now, if I'm the parent of a child in a school lunch program, and and I, I will actually say that as I start this off, that your website does a very good job, I think, of of walking parents through what they would have to do if they're not a member already, if they're not enrolled in that program. But but so if I am, uh, what do I have to do uh, in order to be eligible to take advantage of this program? We ask parents who are interested and have not already received a voucher to go to their school and verify that they are registered for the National School Lunch Program and that their address and contact information is correct in that system. Um, Once that's been done, up until this point, uh, we were waiting for the, the updates from the schools to go to the State Department of Education and then the State Department of Education would update um, our data set, and then we would send out new vouchers. Now that we're so close to the end, we're able to do some of that more quickly, where we just get a verification from the school directly that they have made the correction. And by a series of emails, they're able to do the vouchers over the telephone. So I would really encourage um, parents to to go ahead and call that toll-free number and, and get the guidance from ABC for Students because we can expedite the process now. Excellent. One of the things that my organization focuses on is trying to make sure we're having structural change. You know, how do we make sure that in five years, if we have another pandemic, we've resolved the internet crisis. And I'm, I'm curious of the tension in these programs between providing immediate relief versus a, a long-term structural solution. And so I think the first question along those lines is when, as an ISP, um, receiving the voucher, what can I use the voucher money for? Like, um, how much is it and what, is, what are eligible expenses? So our ISPs can can invoice us for equipment and the connection, the installation, the equipment. And so um, any infrastructure uh, expenses that, that they incur, they are doing that on their own. And I will tell you, we have had some ISPs that were close to an area 
and they got enough voucher requests that they went ahead and dropped some fiber and, and they hooked up some households. So, so there was some infrastructure improvement, but it was private investment that wasn't part of this program. We do have a state program, the Alabama Broadband Accessibility Fund, that's been funded for two years in a row now at $20 million. Um, we're just getting ready to open that up as well. So we're, we're hearing from some of those ISPs that they now know where their next um, focus needs to be. And they'll be applying to us for funds to go um, to that next level so that they'll be ready to provide service uh, down the road. In my prep work for this, uh, Joanne Hovis from CTC had said that she felt like this program is offering, because of those initial connection fees that are able to be included for um, for some folks, uh, where it might be a more than a, than, a, than a simple expense. I mean, some homes, obviously, there's a very small expense to connect, and others there might be a, a larger one, um, that this is making a, a structural difference um, in ways that you might not expect a voucher program to make. I, I would agree 100%. We are getting a lot of, of feedback from particularly our local ISPs saying that very thing that, that they, they were able to, as, as the um, equipment and installation costs pay for things that those households could not have paid for on their own. So I'm curious then, have you heard from uh, the families of folks that have taken advantage of this? I mean, and actually I think remind me, you're you're well over a hundred thousand now, I believe, but uh, how many folks and uh, have you heard any really inspiring stories that make it easier to come into the office each day? (laughs) <laughs> we 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 are over 120,000 students that have, um, have received service through this program. So we are very excited about that. You know, the calls that I get are, are primarily from the people who want to figure out how to get connected. Um, I, I haven't benefited from any direct um, feedback from families, but I have heard um, anecdotally that there are many families out there who are just thrilled that they're not in hot, hot parking lots because it's still hot down here. It was 85 degrees yesterday um, <laughs> trying to do homework in the, in the school parking lot off of a cell phone is, is just not, it's, it, it's, it's not conducive to, to good, um, to good morning environment. And, um, you know, just a lot of grandparents um, and, and, and working parents who, who have struggled with trying to get their children to a place supervised to get things done either at night after hours uh, or during the school day when they're required to log on and be seen by a teacher somewhere. It's been so helpful to so many of those families to be able to participate in the education system in a meaningful way and not just trying to piece something together to make it work, to get just get the school year over with. And I think a lot of families felt like that the last part of the last school year was just we were just trying to get to the end and it didn't really count and nobody learned much of anything. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's how some of the families felt. And this year they feel like they're active participants in their classrooms because they have this connectivity. I'd offer to do a heat exchange program. We have uh, <laughs> we have snow on the ground and an actual ice. <laughs> I'm actually from Minnesota, um, Minneapolis, <laughs> so I I know exactly. I watch the weather up there all the time. <laughs> Sorry yeah. about that. <laughs> oh no, I'm I would I would prefer ice on the ground to 85 degrees myself. So personally, um. I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> I think my listeners get tired of me talking about uh, the weather, but I um, I can't tell you how how excited my family is to to get out in the snowshoes and things like that. Yeah. Um, so I, regarding where the vouchers are going, um, 
Do you have a sense? You, you, you said that there's a lot of participation from the local companies. Um, it actually sounds like there's probably not very many local ISPs that are not a part of this program. Do you have a sense uh, where the vouchers are going in terms of rural, urban, local companies or, or out-of-state companies? So we haven't done a whole lot of analysis on that yet because we're um, we're just sending the letters out as quickly as we can get them updated. So the process of geocoding each of those addresses so that we can find out where exactly they're being redeemed, um, it, that's probably going to be a um, next month kind of project as, as the um, redemptions start to slow down we can start doing some analysis. But I will say that it is a statewide program and, and we don't, um, we have not created any kind of geographic preference to how we've sent them out or how we have um, issued contracts. We did try to make sure that we had good geographic distribution of, um, of ISPs, but we have large sections of the state, um, particularly in the area that's known as the Black Belt region, there, there's nothing there. And so um, there are certainly rural areas that, that um, we have had a hard time reaching. Um, I know that we have taken some special steps to try and, and work with those schools and to give them additional support in terms of getting the word out that the program is available, making hotspots available in those areas and doing whatever we could to, to make, uh, make those rural areas more connected. Um, obviously, some of our, our big national companies, are they had a lot of existing customers who were low income, and so there was a lot of redemption of vouchers to pay as credits on existing accounts, and, and, and they are getting um, a large amount of, of the, the vouchers. So, um, but, but I think we knew that going into it, the contract amounts uh, varied based on where they said they could provide service, uh, based on the lists of students that we had. And so uh, we knew going into it that the, the bigger companies were, were going to have more vouchers redeemed than the smaller companies. Now, when you, when you say about the, the negotiations over the, the voucher amounts, so you didn't set a, a given, like everyone gets the same amount per family per month. You actually did an analysis based on, um, I guess I'm curious on what. <laughs> <laughs> So what we did was in addition to signing a contract, um, we also then had to um, enter into some non-disclosure agreements with the various ISPs because they were going to tell us where they could serve and they didn't want that to be out there. And we were going to tell them where these um, where these addresses were and we didn't want that out there. And so we had these um, non-disclosure agreements. Once everybody agreed to you know, look at the data and then forget what they saw, we were able to... Um, to look at the addresses that, that we needed to reach and look at the service areas that they had and come up with a, a number of estimated vouchers that would be the, the maximum that any given um, ISP could reach. And then we set the contract based on what they had did in their RFP response uh, and, and, and just did the math. Okay. So one of the things that has been discussed at the federal level is kind of like a flat $50 a month. And without, you know, I'm just curious if you're seeing the vouchers, um, would you say you're paying significantly less than that, like on average? I would. Um, we have some of these that, that, for instance, with the hotspots, you know, 99 cents is what they're charging us. And we, um, we, we couldn't get that without um, going through a, a negotiated contract. So so we've gotten some really good prices. In fact, based on our initial conversation, we're, um, we're almost 50% less than what we initially estimated. 
because the prices were so much better than the off the shelf prices. Excellent. That's got to give you some faith that it's worth forging forward if you can find any additional funds. Absolutely. Um, and we, we, we have been very impressed with the, um, I think that, I think the best way to frame it is the civic mindedness of the companies, both local and um, national companies that came in here and worked with us on not only um, dealing with the complexities of the program, but giving us some great prices and billing structures. And I think that leads us right into lessons learned and things that you've improved in the program on the way. Uh, what are some things that you've adjusted as you've you've gone along that might be different from how you expected it would work out? Well, I think one of the things that we discovered early on is the data set for the families who are eligible. It is so difficult to find a good set of information. Um, we have refined that information over several mailing cycles of the vouchers. And, and even now we're finding that that daily we get dozens of calls, people who didn't get a voucher or can't redeem it because it's got the wrong address. And, and it's that that's that's the biggest obstacle we've had. I'm not sure we fully solved that problem at this point. Mm-hmm. I think the the only thing that we could have done differently in that in that area would have been to work directly with the schools. And, and part of what we didn't want to do was burden them while they were trying to roll out these virtual learning programs, also have them have to do all this kind of grant work. And, and so for the purposes of, of the program as it, as it was intended for the pandemic, I think us doing it at a state level uh, worked. But I think if it were the kind of thing that we're going to go on indefinitely, there would need to be some other way to verify eligibility for the program, because that was that was the biggest obstacle. This is one of the things that as my child is getting ready to enter the school system, the school in our neighborhood that he will almost certainly attend. It, it has, and, and this is the prosperous, you know, Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul are, are, I think most people would agree, assumed to be fairly prosperous. Um, I certainly, you know, find it that way. Um, and 30% of the kids in uh, this neighborhood school in St. Paul um, experience homelessness over the course of the year. And mm. so you can only imagine that, of course, your data set is changing significantly. You have families that might be changing homes several times a month. Um, you know, um, And so I, I think that's, um, it's really a, an important note that when we're considering how to deal with that, it's also hard for the ISPs if they really want to try to connect these folks and they're moving around constantly. And that was one of the, the things that we determined early on, even if we had a state that was covered, covered up in fiber and, and everybody could connect, we do have that population. And so we did know early on that no matter how we structured the program, there were going to be a number of students that were going to have to be served with hotspots just because they, they don't have housing security. And so their, their residences do change throughout the school year. And even throughout a given month, they may live at multiple addresses. So that is certainly something that um, that that we identified early on, um, and and there was some talk about developing a component of the program that would deal um, directly with the social workers and counselors at some of the schools to help us identify who those students were. Um, and of course, with the timing of everything, everything we thought of, um, we we weren't able to implement everything, but but those are available to uh, those students, even though we don't have a formal program for them. And what were some of the other lessons that were learned? Well, somebody gave out my personal phone number as the number to call if you had a question. <laughs> so um, that would be a lesson learned that I just don't give my number to anybody. 
Um, and, and, um, uh, did you get I a few think, phone calls then? <laughs> uh, I, I still daily get about 30 sure. or 40 calls. Just, oh, wow. That's with this. Um, so, uh, that, that's certainly just having the manpower to, to deal with the, this kind of program. Um, folks are intimidated by anything having to do with technology, broadband, and, and even though, as you, you mentioned, um, the, the website, it has a lot of great, great information on it and is very helpful. Um, the brochure itself, the voucher itself has all of the information on it, but people just wanted to talk to somebody. And so that's something um, we did build it into the program. And again, CTC had, um, that was part of our contract with them was to provide that assistance. It's just getting, getting them to call the right number to get that, that one-on-one. But, but that is something in this population. Um, we notice a lot of these, um, a lot of the folks that call me are grandparents of children, and they really wanted to just talk to someone to, to walk them through the process. Um, they, they were intimidated by it. So I would say that's a lesson learned that, that um, you know, I think we had a simplified process and I think we had good contacts set up. But having been through it now, we might even make it a, a more simple process and have the, um, the toll-free number um, even more accessible than, than we had it. That's interesting because one of the things that I think about in relation to bringing people online is I think your typical person who is making these policies, who probably has a grad school degree or certainly an undergrad degree, I don't think we appreciate how common the people that we're trying to get connected have to deal with fraud. And I mean, I certainly as a homeowner receive numerous things that look official throughout the course of the year that suggest I need to pay some sort of fee. I get a phone call almost every day about my car warranty. Right. <laughs> and they're not aiming at people like me that have the ability to, to in the time to sort of wrestle through this. So I'm not surprised to hear that, that people want to talk to someone to confirm that what they're seeing is real. Yes. Yes, we, we, we did. We get a lot of that, that not only are they intimidated by the technology, but these are, these are people who, who are looking out, and, and I'm glad that they are, but looking out for potential scams. Mm-hmm. I, I will say that we have heard a, a lot of feedback from CTC as, as they have been trying to reach out directly to many of the families who have not redeemed their vouchers. Um, uh, just to find out, hey, can we help you redeem this? Um, how many of them are saying they haven't heard of the program? So I would say that's another big lesson learned um, that no matter how much you think you have gotten the word out, it's not enough. Uh, and I don't know if it's ever enough. There's always going to be someone who said, I didn't know. But we have such large numbers of people who said they haven't heard of the program that I know that in certain parts of the state, for sure, um, whatever we were doing didn't work. So that's something that, that we definitely want to do more outreach and work. Again, I think that's one of those things. If we had more time, we could have worked more with the schools. Um, we gave them a lot of materials to put out there, but not all of them had an opportunity to get those materials out there. So that's something that I think uh, a long-term program would definitely require more outreach to the families so that they know about the program. Now you've you've mailed them directly to them. Um, aside from that, what is what would you say is the most effective outreach that you've done that you would double down on? So we've got a couple. Um, certainly, when when we do the direct calling, just to find out, hey, why didn't you um, redeem your voucher? Can we help you? That that certainly 
yields pretty high response rate. Um, we have a pilot program that we worked on with um, Jefferson County Schools, and they took some real initiative in, in reaching out directly to the families and, and, and doing some direct contact so that the, the program information came from the school rather than from the state or some unknown entity, ABC for students. And, and that had some really good results. So um, that, of course, that was labor intensive on the school district part, but they had the capacity and the willingness to do it. So they did it and, and we had good results with that. So in a longer term program where more of the schools could have that direct contact with their families, that's who the families trust is the school. And I think that's where the message um, for us, I think that's, that's what we felt like the message needed, needed to come from the schools. Yeah, that's, I think, very insightful. Um, do you have a sense of whether you'll be able to track how the families respond uh, at the end of the year if the program is not immediately renewed, um, if there's a, a gap or if the program is permanently ended? I think there are going to be a lot of families who we were able to provide them some of that the, the entry level, um, the, the installation and the equipment costs that they're just going to pick up with the program. We have enough of these providers who also have their own programs that they are going to work with some of these families to transition into uh, service after the end of the calendar year. Um, unfortunately, I think some of these families, were, they're not going to be able to afford to, to do the um, long term. Hopefully, they'll be able to afford it at least through the end of the school year. But we are looking to see if there are other ways that we can fund this. I'm sure it's hard. <laughs> I can tell from your facial expressions, like these families needed it and um, and they have it. And, and we certainly hope that I hope that Congress does its part to craft uh, a better program. I think you've done a very good job. A lot of states have really struggled struggled to figure out how to expend CARES Act money effectively because of the rules around it. Um, but I really hope we see a, an addition of that so that your program can continue. I, I, I do it as well. And and one of the spinoffs to, to all this, of course, our focus was, was virtual learning for our students, but so many families now have the opportunity um, to to use the telehealth and in our rural communities where we don't have the hospitals and the doctor's offices, and even in our urban areas where people are afraid to go to those places, um, we've, we've seen a real uptick in, in that need as well. And, and some, of, some of the feedback we get is, you know, we know we're supposed to use this for school, but this has been great for our household for, for other reasons. So there are just so many benefits to providing um, broadband access to as many people as possible that, that I do hope that Congress and, and individual states all recognize that this affordability component is an important part of keeping everybody connected and, and that it's got so many benefits on so many levels. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's it's exciting. Um, I think, you know, I, I can't imagine in 10 years we don't have some kind of program that's helping low-income families. And, and I think this program will really give a lot of lessons learned as we see more of them developed. So thank you. Thank you. That was Christopher talking with Maureen Neighbors. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at CommunityNets. Follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at MuniNetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. 
While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 436 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.